Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts, and I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. My guest today is Dr. Arthur Lavin. Dr. Lavin is married and has three children, two of whom are married and two of whom are identical twins. He is a pediatrician in private practice and an associate clinical professor of pediatrics at Case Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. He is the chairperson of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Psychosocial Aspects of Child and Family Health, the entity of the academy charged with developing policy relating to the psychological and social well-being of the children of America. Dr. Lavin is the co-author of two books on parenting, Who's the Boss? Moving Families from Conflict to Collaboration, and Babies and Toddlers Sleep Solutions for Dummies. He serves in leadership positions on national efforts to reduce the impact of neurotoxins on child brains and to stop the incidence of child abuse. Dr. Lavin was trained and taught at Harvard and MIT, including training by Dr. T. Barry Brazelton. He has served on a number of national committees of the American Academy of Pediatrics and published original research in such journals as Science. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lavin. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? I'm good, Leah. It's good to see you again. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I was uh, looking at your bio, which I described at the introduction, and it is crazy interesting. How did you get from Harvard, MIT, Ohio State, also have boards in pediatrics and I think neonatal medicine. And how did you get from there to psychosocial pediatrics? What I like to think of as a step up, actually. You know, I was very lucky I got to be trained at Harvard. It was tremendous training. Because I was there, I was around a lot of high-powered minds who thought that I'd be best served if I went into a subspecialty. And their argument was, even though I've always been interested in general pediatrics, their argument was if you do work in the neonatal intensive care unit, you'll be well seasoned for practice. Nothing will overwhelm you in practice. Uh, It'd be good experience even if you go back into that. So I did that. And that's when I learned uh, during that time in the ICU that I was more suited to work with, more interested, more passionate really about working with people through relationships rather than through crises. And so the story that actually changed my career path was a family who I took care of as a resident in pediatrics over a four or five year period now, uh, sadly delivered a child who had a very complex neonatal um, abnormality. And it was the first time I took care of someone who I'd known for five or six years in the neonatal intensive care unit. And I found that the level of trust that we had with each other allowed me to be far more helpful. And the family got a lot more help from me as a result of having that relationship And I thought, well, this is the way I want to practice medicine, not just from one emergency to another. I can handle the emergencies in practice. We see, we still continue to see lots of things that require doctors' attention, but it's in the setting of relationships now that I've had with people in my practice for over 30 years. And, you know, when you know someone for 30 years, you develop an, an enormous level of trust and the things you can do together, family can do with you and you can do with the family, allow you to go far deeper. I could be more helpful. The family can get a lot more change in their life and benefit from the advice. So um, that's why I, I, as soon as I finished my three years of specialty training, I went directly into general pediatrics. And what about psychosocial medicine? Although I think a great deal of any kind of medicine involves psychosocial. I don't know how you can really separate that out anyway. And so how, how that, why that? Well, probably shouldn't say this, but I'm not a big fan of the word psychosocial because it says that, you know, there's a special category of psychological or 
social realities when in fact I've never met a person who wasn't didn't experience a major chunk of their life, including me, in their own mind and in their own community. So we're all built out of what goes on in our head and what goes around in our neighborhood and our state and our nation and the world. And the other thing is coming back to what I said before, I've really based my entire career on the foundation of the value of a relationship. And if you're in relationship with somebody, I don't care if it's in your family or a friendship or in practice, you are operating on the in the realm of the psychological and the social. So that, so yes, I like psychosocial things. I like that world, but I think it's bigger than the word psychosocial suggests. I think it's our entire experience. I would really encourage all pediatricians to embrace the joy of connecting with people. You know, keep it real simple. If you connect with people, you get to know them, they get to know you, and then you can explore ways to help them uh, much more easily. We can call that psychosocial, but I think it's more fun if you think about it as connecting with people and enjoying that, that connection over many years. I would I would totally agree with that. And, uh, you know, as I've been in practice for 32 years, you know, when you've been doing this long enough, it, you know, and you do build those relationships, now you have your patients bringing you their babies. And yes. uh, that's always pretty remarkable to me, you know, when I, or I'm in the grocery store and somebody says, Hey, you used to take care of my daughter and she's 25 now, which, you know, dates you a bit, but it is pretty remarkable. And I do think that there's so much of an intimacy that we are allowed as physicians in particular. I mean, it's quite an honor and responsibility because people share things with us that they often share with very few people. I mean, maybe they're religious leaders, but um, sometimes it's things that they wouldn't have said to anyone else. And that's quite a level of trust and needs to be honored. And and we do ask a lot of probing questions. I'm not sure Freud actually practiced this, but he would talk about the idea of if someone, if you help somebody, we're talking about his clients, it's as if you are a... Um, an honored person in a king's or queen's court. Mm. Not that Freud was the king or queen, the, the client, the patient is the king or queen. And he's honored to be present. And what you say reminds me of that. It's exactly right. It's that sense that we're the lucky ones. You know, a lot of medicine sometimes takes a stance the patient's lucky to have us, but the truth is we're lucky to be in a position to help others. That is completely true. So I want to really, I guess, springboard off of that. You've been interested in behavioral health and you published a book called Who's the Boss? Moving Families from Conflict to Collaboration, which got some pretty amazing reviews. And my favorite one was Get Out Your Highlighter. <laughs> so what prompted you to write the book? Well, this ties right into, you know, it's funny, each of these questions turn out to be connected to each other. So I went into pra regular practice and connected with people. And one of the people I got to know pretty well was a mother who turned out to be a preschool director. Well, it turns out this, this person, Susan Glazer, I can mention her name because she's on the book. She's a co-author. So it's public information. She turned out to be a real expert in early childhood education, early childhood psychology, was trained at a very sophisticated level about how to think about helping parents raise young children. And I remember a long time ago, we got into a discussion about toilet training, which is something she had honed to a very fine craft. And I, I can tell you that coming out of six years of training at Harvard, I had no idea how to, to how to help someone toilet train their child. And, and there were good people in psychology who were training me there too. And I, I just had no idea. Susan did. And I said, Susan, we've got to get this word out to folks because it's not really toilet training. It, it, the issue isn't getting a child to use the toilet. It's turning the responsibility of their poop and pee over to the child. So with that insight, I said, you know, let's write a monograph and make that available to parents. And as I began talking with Susan, I realized this whole concept of helping a child 
take over the problem that they create and that children do generate conflicts with their parents, that that's a normal part of development and that parents could use a lot of help in understanding that the fights their children pick over food and sleeping through the night and discipline all are the same theme over and over again. And, and to be honest, Susan and I spent 12 years writing this book and um, we developed a philosophy of parenting guiding around all those issues. And, but it was really, it was two things, Leah. It was, um, it was uh, knowing Susan and, and learning from her, but it was also listening to the families in my practice who were telling me they were really having a lot of trouble disciplining their kid, getting them to sleep through the night, helping them come to peace with their food choices and such. And so it was uh, hearing that that was an important issue in parents' lives and then having the resource of a, of a uh, early uh, childhood educator to collaborate with that led to the production of the book. So interesting. And mm-hmm. I was thinking as I was looking at some of the problems that you listed, I think there were six of them you talked about. And all of them, except maybe toilet training, I think could apply to teenagers because they, as you said, so eloquently create their own conflict and have issues with sleep for sure. And during COVID, that is, I think, one of the biggest disruptors has been sleep. And, you know, sibling rivalry and getting along with friends and discipline is huge. So do you think some of the tenants apply to all ages? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. We, um, well, first of all, I'll tell you that we would give talks on discipline and food and all these struggles. And I remember the first time I gave a talk on how to manage food struggles, I thought this will be the quickest talk I ever give because it's such a simple solution. Just, you know, don't fight. Well, it turns out the food discussions were the most intense of all the things we talked about and took the longest time. And so one time we were asked to present to the employees of Ohio's largest uh, health insurer. So we go into this large corporation and there's all these uh, employees who are parents in the audience and uh, talk about food. And it was a very uh, emotionally intense conversation. And, at, and, and we talk about how, again, as you said, Leah, that the idea is uh, it's not the parent's job to get the child to eat something, make your choices, buy only healthy foods. If there are only healthy foods available, it doesn't matter what they choose. And so don't give the child the power over you by you caring what they choose. If the child creates the problem, let the child solve it. And a lot of senior people in the corporation came up to us afterwards and said, you know what, could you come back and give a talk about office politics to our employees? Because just as you said, these issues, the idea, you know, we made a big point about if person A creates a problem, it's very hard for person B to solve it. And they said, this is exactly what goes on in the office amongst 50, 40, 60-year-old adults. And you should come back and talk about how they can help that. So there's no question these concepts are generalizable, and we certainly see them in adolescence. I think it gets interesting in adolescence because, you know, if we're talking about a two-year-old refusing to do something, the balance of power is pretty strong and the dependency is still very intense. Uh, the child at age two is very dependent on the parent, as we all know. But, you know, it's, it gets a little more complicated to go from age 12 to 18. And you, and you shift from being dependent on the parent to being independent of the parent. And so uh, this concept of letting the person solve their own problem with consequences for their choices, we all... Even at my age, I pay consequences for my choices. We all do. So I'm not saying that there's nothing happens if someone makes a bad choice in adolescence, but it's really up to the adolescent to make the choices. And we see this all over the place in adolescent medicine. You know, even in heartbreaking situations like um, drug addiction, uh, ultimately, it's the person who chooses whether to use the drug or not one of the hallmarks of uh, rehab is that other people can't decide that for the person. You know, rehab is recovery is basically the process of helping that adolescent learn. Maybe it's a good idea to choose not to use the drug, but it's, it's exactly the same concept of if there's a struggle, 
someone's hurting themselves, really it's that person who, who really ha- is the only one who has the power to make the choices to get out of trouble. Well, and I wonder a little bit too, we talk about the problem the kid creates. The flip side of that, of course, is the problems the parents create or bring to the whole issue. I mean, certainly, you know, the whole area of adverse childhood experiences and poverty and homelessness. Now they're bringing all that to, you know, the kid, like, could you please just eat because I got all this other stuff to worry about and you have to eat what I have because this is what we can afford. Then it gets really complicated and we don't always know what parents are bringing to the relationship, you know, based on their own experiences. I mean, I think most of us, you know, do the best we can. And I remember Ross Green, uh, who also wrote a lot about, you know, behavior as a psychologist had also said that, you know, kids do what they can. And if they can't, you know, maybe there's other things we need to consider. But I think certainly parents are a big part of that. Well, talk about that food struggle I was talking about, how shocked I was that, you know, I actually had a family leave my practice. They were so upset about uh, what I was saying about letting the child decide, which I considered fairly bland advice. But the point is, uh, if you go, if you talk with somebody about your child's sleep, or you talk to someone about their child's eating, or talk to them about how they resist guidance, most of that conversation, in fact, I'd say... 99% of the conversations I've had over all these years have been with the parents about it. It's usually not an issue from the child's point of view. The child's fine not sleeping through the night. The child's very happy being picky eater. And so what I always learn when I'm in conversation with anybody about these issues is where they're coming from in terms of it. And all of us are coming from somewhere on most of these things. So it's very hard to be completely bland and neutral about food and sleep and all these issues. And kids make easy targets for adults on this. You know, I can't think of a family where a child hasn't done something that's provoked a response from a parent. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the issue has to do with what the parent, why the parent feels so strongly about. Why is that? What, what was it in the parent's life that really led to them or their circumstance, as you said, very aptly that. Maybe they came from, you know, there's a lot of food insecurity in the United States, or what we used to call hunger. And maybe parents grew up hungry. And it just is deeply unsettling to see a child throw a bowl of good spaghetti on the floor. So, yes, I think, I think these issues really aren't so much about the child. I often tell families when I'm talking about as you mentioned, food, sleep, and toileting is that you can't make kids eat, sleep, or poop and pee. I mean, it's up to the kids and they will always win. And, you know, whether or not you really want it, I mean, you you just can't force a child to sleep. You can make them stay in their room and stay in their bed, but, you know, for them to close their eyes and have onset of sleep is totally up to them. So I like the way you frame that, and that gives you a kind of a a way to approach that. But I totally agree as a parent, man, there were a lot of things that I could have used that advice on, particularly when you have some kids that are trying to think of a good term, sort of the... They're going to be the leaders when they get older, but they sure have their own mind made up about what they're going to do and and bring that to the relationship too. So you have kids that are certainly much more compliant and then you've got the kids with, boy, a mind of their own. For sure. Well, I think we all do, hopefully. I mean, something's terribly wrong if you don't have a mind of your own. Right, right. (laughs) So that's actually kind of a nice segue into my next thing was talking a little bit about childhood behaviors that might be impairing for kids and impact function. And you've done some work on um, attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, you know, I think we often think of if a kid is misbehaving in class and um, talks over other kids and runs on the sidewalk, which was what my first grade report card 
had on it, which is interesting. Uh, my husband would concur that I raise my hand way too much. But, you know, there's this kind of idea that, oh, they must have ADHD because I think partly there's a fix to that now. I mean, certainly, you know, with Ritalin that came out, gosh, in the 60s, you know, and this has always been the purview of pediatricians, I think even more so than psychiatrists, is that, you know, ADHD is is kind of our bread and butter in terms of behavioral medicine. So, Maybe it's not ADHD. Maybe it's something else. And can you talk a little bit about what what we should be thinking about when we see these types of, you know, sometimes they're referred to as externalizing behaviors, you know, the ones that are difficult for everybody? You bet. I'd be happy to, Leah. So I want to I give some credit to someone who opened my eyes to this whole uh, question that you raised. And that's a guy who's a professor at Harvard still, Lenny Rappaport, Leonard Rappaport, who's published a lot of things on child psychological issues. When I was a lowly intern and knew nothing, um, he sat us all down. He said, listen, boys and girls, when you approach this issue of ADHD, I want you to keep in mind that's no different than fever in terms of how you want to think about it. So I'm sure even before you went to med school, you knew that there were more than one cause for fever. It could be strep, it could be pneumonia, it could be ear infection. If you told everyone who had fever in your practice they had strep throat, you wouldn't have much of a practice anymore because everyone's asking you to figure out why you have the fever, not that you have a fever. So I want, he said, it's not any more complicated than that for ADHD. ADHD at its heart is a symptom. Now, the definition of it, there is a thing called ADHD, but if you look at the definition, there's something like over a dozen or so symptoms that you have to have six or more of, something like that. Otherwise, if you don't have the symptoms of ADHD, you don't have ADHD. Everyone knows that. But clause 2E in the definition says you have to have at least six of those symptoms, and those symptoms can't be explained by a better explanation. So, for instance, Let's say I am in sixth grade and I have dyslexia and I can't read and no one's figured that out. And I've been miserable for seven years and everyone thinks I'm a big dummy because I can't read. I hate school. And as soon as I walk in the door, my brain goes to the water park. Forget about it. Because even if I stay in school in my mind, it's not, I'm not going to get anywhere. Oh, well, guess what my teacher thinks I have? ADHD. And if I go to a lot of places in the United States to be tested, I'll be asked whether I have all these symptoms. I'll have all the symptoms of ADHD. But think about what Lenny Rappaport taught me. I have symptoms of ADHD, but is something else explaining it better than the condition ADHD? And in this particular instance, the better explanation is dyslexia. Sure, I could I could pass for ADHD. I meet the criteria, but dyslexia is a better explanation. And guess what happens? I'm using an example here. I don't actually have dyslexia, but I've seen plenty of kids in the situation who've gone six grades in their life diagnosed with ADHD on Adderall. It didn't help. We did an evaluation, which is what you do to figure out what's really causing the symptoms, and we found out they had dyslexia. Oh. They go to the Wilson method, they learn how to read, and all their attention problems go away. So how do you know it's a better explanation? Because when you treat the better explanation, the ADHD symptoms go away. So, Lee, I think it's very important for people listening in on uh, your excellent podcast series to, to really appreciate that over the years, I'd say about a third of the kids who've presented to my office all set and diagnosed as having ADHD did not have it. I could have easily placed them on um, stimulant medication and sentenced them to another five or six years of going in the wrong direction. So I think it's such an important point. And, you know, it's not just dyslexia. So that would be, I think it's important for your audience to know that there's, there's easy to remember categories that could explain symptoms of ADHD when in fact it isn't. So that would be cognitive issues, having trouble learning things like reading, like dyslexia, or math, or working memory, you know, executive function, dysfunctions. And then there's emotional uh, problems. You know, people with anxiety is a very common cause of, of inattention. 
We see all the time kids who don't have ADHD, they're just very anxious and they can't pay attention because they're so worried or depression or bipolar disease, other emotional and affective issues. And then there's a host of physical illnesses, I won't list them all, that can cause inattention. Well, thyroid is an example. And then there are relationship issues. Let's talk about how if your parents are getting divorced or an uncle died or you hate your teacher, that can give you those symptoms of inattention as well. Um, so there's a rich, you know, we, we, the American Pediatrics recently published a paper on this topic and included in it was a list of things that could look like ADHD, but really aren't. And there are 49 items on that list. So I think anyone who thinks their child is ADHD, any teacher who thinks their student is ADHD, it's very important that their pediatrician follow the AP recommendations and think like they would about fever and think about, you know, what else could it be? So having that broad differential diagnosis, because I think a lot of times it's not the right diagnosis. And then of course the treatment's not helpful. I often liken the learning disability to, let's say you were in a classroom and it was only being presented in Japanese and you don't speak Japanese. It's not going to be very long before you tune out because you have no idea what they're saying. So it doesn't matter how much you pay attention. If you were on Ritalin, it's just not going to make you know Japanese. So sometimes parents seem to understand that. And I think the same is true of anxiety and depression. I mean, if I'm worrying about where I'm going to sleep tonight and if my mom's going to be safe, you know, am I going to really pay attention to math facts that don't seem that important right now? I'm going to be pretty preoccupied. Probably same for us on those days when we have stuff going on outside of our own practice. You know, when we have our own personal stuff, it's you're not always bringing your best game. For sure. And, and the other thing I think it's good for people to keep in mind is that the uh, drugs are very effective for everyone. So a recent study at a local college here in Cleveland showed that 93% of the undergrads were taking stimulants during finals period. Um, Now, there's no way 93% of them had ADHD, but there's a reason why 93% were taking it because their grades went up. It works. It works for people who don't have ADHD. You know, when I was in training, Leah, I was taught, not by Dr. Rappaport, but by others, that if you give someone who doesn't have ADHD, Ritalin or Concerta or Adderall, nothing happens. Uh, but if you give them those drugs, then suddenly their academic performance improves. That's absolutely not true. It, it's like coffee. Coffee helps everybody function better. And these drugs, I don't know about everybody, but uh, about 80% of people who take stimulants, no matter what their situation, will improve their cognitive performance. So I've seen many, many children who don't have ADHD been placed on Adderall or Focalin or one of these stimulants, and their grades go up, their homework gets turned in. But then it turns out they have a completely different problem. The medicine still worked and really uh, misled the families into thinking that the problem was solved. And those situations often take five or six years to unravel because uh, everyone's so convinced that the issue settled. Wow, that's a really good point. Certainly explains a lot of diversion on college campuses. Uh, you know, if, if it really helps everybody, I mean, why wouldn't people seek that out? The other thing that you touched on is this comorbidity. So you can have learning disabilities and have ADHD. You can have anxiety and ADHD, and then it gets really confusing or often messy family, which I wish we had a pill for, but don't. And that often is just a whole nother topic. And so teasing all this out is takes a lot of time and effort. And of course, there are barriers, which I think the AAP article also talked about time reimbursement, you know, I mean, to do this well is labor intensive, and you want to make the right diagnosis, but it's not always easy. I think it comes back to that relationship theme that we started the conversation with, which I'm very grateful that you did that. And that is that if I care about this child, I I really want them to succeed. It's actually sort of nice to be able to get them back on their feet. And I don't 
I don't see it as costly to me so much as, a, again, goes back to that sense of opportunity, an opportunity to help. And we, we spend a lot of time with people and, you know, I own my own practice and it's very viable. It does very well. So I, I don't believe that there's a, uh, no financial way to make this work. I've seen it work. And yep, I, I think it's very important what you mentioned about the comorbidities too. And I, I want to say that uh, in contrast to ear infections and strep throat, mental health issues and behavioral and socio-emotional issues tend to be mutually inclusive. So in physical disease, things are mutually exclusive. In fact, you know, as pediatricians, we get very excited when we see an ear infection because we say, oh, it's an ear infection. It's not, you know, 12 other things. Once we get that diagnosis, we're done. Not 100% of the time, but often enough, it feels very good to find something because we know we've got the answer. Not true when it comes to the brain. Brain can juggle all sorts of things in its head. We all do all the time. And so it's no, no hard thing for the mind to be worried, inattentive, and, um, and have a stomach ache all at once. And, and we see it all the time. And, and the way I approach it is I like to think about what's the engine driving the problem. If a child has five or six issues, dyslexia, ADHD, anxiety, divorcing parents, all of that. What do I think is the one thing I could remove that would most likely get them back on their feet? And in most situations, you can usually get a sense of what that one thing is. And maybe I'm wrong and it's the other thing. But I start with my best guess, of course. And then if that doesn't work, I go to the next. That puts me in a position to be most likely to help the family. So I, I, don't, I, want, I want people to feel comfortable with the with the mind being able to do more than one thing at a time and thinking carefully about what's that engine, you know, yeah, it's complex, things overlap, but usually there's something driving the situation. And asking families sometimes, what's the biggest issue for you? Is it the issue that they're not getting their homework done or that they have to check with you a gazillion times about what time you're going to pick them up because they're so fearful that you're going to leave them and they've had separation anxiety since, you know, kindergarten, where are you going to start? And, you know, sometimes it does require treatment and maybe it's medication, maybe it's therapy, maybe it's both. It just opens the door for, you you have to start somewhere. And I do think that, you know, the clinicians may vary a little bit which direction they go for first, but, um, you know, I, I rarely start two medications at the same time. I think that's pretty, I just don't know how you sort out which is what. So if I make a change, I usually just do one thing at a time. And parents seem to understand that that makes sense. Well, I think you hit a bullseye when you said, uh, ask the parents, you know, again, always goes, everything always goes back to relationship because if you have a good relationship with the family and you listen, wow, I'm sure you've had this experience a thousand times, if not more. They tell you the answer. I mean, we're crazy not to listen because they know the answer and they'll share it with you. And uh, so, you know, getting that answer makes uh, the ability to get the right approach so much more effective. That really reminds me of medical school. I can't remember which historical physician it was that said, you know, that the diagnosis is in the history. And, you know, if you listen, I mean, you can do all kinds of fancy tests and of course that's going to help, but so much of the answer is in the history. And then there's also sort of this idea about ritual and laying on of hands, which I think is relationship. And I just recently rewatched the TED talk by Abraham Verghese, who wrote Cutting for Stone and a couple of other incredible books. He's an infectious disease physician. And he talks about the art of the physical exam and that by not touching our patients and going through the ritual of the exam, that we are not sharing with the family part of our care and healing. And it's, it's an excellent TED Talk. It just reminds you of the power of touch and relationship. I think you summed that up beautifully. Abraham Vergase was actually a very close friend of my aunt's, my, my mom's sister. I never met him. I mean, my uh, fam- half my family's uh, in Texas and we grew up in Ohio. But uh, I remember her talking very highly of him. And uh, that's very meaningful to hear his name mentioned. Thank you for that. 
So one of the other things I was going to ask you about the AAP ADHD guidelines were some of the newer recommendations from previous guidelines. Although there weren't a ton of changes, are there any particular changes that stand out for you? I and mean, we've talked a lot about comorbidities and broader, you know, thinking about the differential. Were there other things that stood out for you? So there's two papers to talk about. One is the AP has a, a set of guidelines. You know, if you're a pediatrician, how do you know someone's ADHD? And if they do, how do you treat it? So that's a very intensive review of evidence. It's just revised. I think it came out uh, not that long ago, the new revision. And it's very similar to the former uh, version. I can't think of any uh, dramatic uh, departures there. So the approach remains in that, in that paper focused. That paper starts with a question uh, when a child enters your office, does my child, does this child, I'm sorry, through the pediatrician, it starts with a question for the pediatrician, does this child have ADHD? And then it goes through a number of tests that you can administer that will tell you if the child has ADHD. And then, and then there's a focus if they have ADHD on looking at other things that could be there with ADHD. That's one paper. The other paper that came out in October of last year, I guess exactly a year ago now, I was from the, uh, the committee I chair and I helped uh, author it. And this is uh, about children struggling in school academically. And this is a broader view. So it's a different question. This is not an ADHD clinical practice guideline. This is a different question. This, is, uh, this helps the pediatrician answer a different question, which is, the child comes to me struggling in school. What are all the possibilities for what could possibly be explaining this situation? What are all the approaches I should be taking to sort all those possibilities out? What are the resources in the community that help me answer such a difficult question? Um, how do I help parents through that? And so that's where the differential diagnosis is. And so we're at, in that paper, we're saying before you get to that question, does the child have ADHD, let's take a step back and say, gee, what could it be altogether? And the two papers are compatible because I'd say the ADHD clinical practice guideline is especially useful if you, you're pretty sure that your problem's ADHD. Now, again, even if, as you've said, Lita, even if you're sure that they have ADHD, there's other things that could be coming along with that, comorbidities. But the other paper takes takes in, you know, talks about that situation a step before that. We don't know if the child's ADHD. You're not sure that's the right path to go down. So how do you handle any child who comes to your office who's having trouble in school? We look at the emotional and the relational and the physical illness and the psychological issues, uh, the, whole, the whole breadth of it. So I think that's an important distinction uh, for everyone, for families and for pediatricians. What question are you asking? You're asking does my child ADHD, you know, that's the question you're asking, or is the question you're asking, I wonder what's going on here in a more general way. Sort of reminds me of Nadine Burke-Harris, who has done a lot of work on adverse childhood experiences, and of course, Andy Garner's work on toxic stress, and the importance of recognizing what that all means. And we kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier that if a child is experiencing any of those adverse experiences of which there's, you know, a list of 10 things, at least from the original study, that those are going to affect a child's functioning. And, you know, resilience is a whole nother piece of that. And, you know, do they have a safe and secure relationship with a nurturing relationship? And that's a whole nother uh, you know, and a whole that's a whole nother talk. And actually, Robert Saul, who also wrote the book on uh, thinking developmentally with Andy Garner, did a previous episode um, with me about parenting. And boy, there's a lot of tie-ins that I think when we think about when kids don't meet expectations, you know, the back to the children do what they can, that if they can't, we have to be very thoughtful to consider all the possibilities. Otherwise, we may be barking up the wrong tree and then it's the wrong treatment. And, you know, really, it, I think it fits the medical model. You know, somebody comes in with abdominal pain, 
you can do a huge workup on abdominal pain, but if it boiled down to its anxiety and you've done this enormously expensive scope and CT and MRI, et cetera, you may totally miss the diagnosis. And I've had many kids that have gone to the emergency room with uh, chest pain, um, abdominal pain, headaches, and, you know, they have these huge workups and the diagnosis was not any of those things. So, and not to say that it can't be those things. I mean, we have to be mindful of all the things in the differential, but we have to remember these other emotional pieces to it. And and I think we're getting better about that. I mean, I think there's been so much conversation about all these other experiences that may affect a child's performance, whether it's in school or with friends or with parents. I mean, there's so many other realms of function. That clinical report that we published last year, and we've talked about this idea of a differential diagnosis, one of the things listed there is trauma. So ACEs are specifically mentioned as something pediatricians need to think about when they see someone struggling in school. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate everything. I did want to wrap up a couple of questions. One of them has to do with, if you could go back and have a conversation with a younger you about pediatrics, what would you want to say to that resident or early career pediatrician now that you know what you know from years of experience? I think the most important piece of advice I would offer is that they should, two things. First of all, they should recognize that the MD degree carries enormous power. I was taught this when I was in residency and a a person a year ahead of me was taking care of a very sick child and the father was on the aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and the child wasn't doing very well. And and the father couldn't get to the hospital. He was on aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We were in Austin. And this guy called the secretary of the Navy and he got the sailor helicoptered over to Boston so he could be with his child at a difficult time. I thought, well, how about that? An MD can get the Secretary of Navy to move a sailor across an ocean and continent. So I think doctors today are, I I think that secret's being kept pretty well. And over the years, I've seen the profession weaken, actually, in that regard. But, But we hold the power when it comes to medical care. We should use that power for our patients' benefits. That's one point. The second is, and I mentioned that first point first, because uh, for young doctors emerging from training, use your power to make sure you're in a position wherever you work. Choose a place to work where you can base what you do on building relationships. If you go to a place that's a mill and you're just churning out people to make money for the uh, corporation that hires you, um, you know, people have documented, you know, people talk a lot about burnout. I think burnout is really about moral wounding. Moral wounding is a situation in which anyone in any profession is being asked to do something that violates or betrays the core value of their profession. And the core value of our profession is the relationship. So if you're popped into a situation where you have to see 30 or 40 people a day where they can't build their new OR in the uh, medical center that you work for, that you're going to be morally wounded and you're at risk for much higher risk for burnout. So uh, I have not seen burnout in doctors whose uh, work day is actually, in fact, centered on relationship. People enjoy that. Families enjoy it. Doctors enjoy it. I enjoy doing it. I've been doing it, you know, 35 years and I'm still really loving it. So that, that would be my uh, two pieces of advice that uh, they Don't be shy about the fact that MD is extremely powerful in the realm of medicine and be sure they use it on behalf of their families and use it in the setting of of a daily routine that celebrates relationships as the main purpose of the practice. That is a huge takeaway. I'm also going to throw out a a shout out to our DO colleagues because they also have doctor in front of their name. And of course they would have, can wield that same power. I I often tell people like, let me throw my weight around. I, you know, it's not like I'm a better human being because I'm a doctor, but my title can open doors that other people can't. And I mean, all you have to say is, hi, this is Dr. Gugino. I need blah, blah, blah. And you know, just a minute, doctor, let me go do whatever it is that you need done, which is an enormous amount of power. And 
you know, you call the school and want to talk to a teacher and the doctor's calling. Wow. Or you go to a graduation party, you know, oh my gosh, Dr. Gagino's here. It means a lot to people. And I, I would agree with you that we can get a lot done if we believe what we're doing matters. And I think maybe it's cliche to, you know, do what you love, love what you do. And if you don't, then, you know, look, look elsewhere, find something. And I believe that passion is what makes us get up in the morning. And I mean, it's partly why I love doing this podcast. It is such a blast to talk about this kind of stuff because I love it. And I get to talk to people that love it too. So it's, it's fun. And hopefully those who listen get a little pumped up and like, oh yeah, I got this. I, this makes sense. I can use this information and, you know, maybe it's not uh, as difficult. I think there's sometimes a lot of sighing when you see, you know, something to do with behavior on your list for the day. It might be easier to do a bunch of ear infections and strep, but boy, not near as interesting. I don't think it's near as rewarding. I mean, it's nice to fix a problem quickly, but to do this other work, boy, it just fills my cup. Absolutely. And, you know, let's be honest, uh, CDS and Rite Aid and uh, Walgreens are taking away the ear infections. They're not great takeaway helping people the way that we've been talking about. So it's a good it's a good thing to do. It's uh, very rewarding, as you say, and I think it, it's the future of the profession. And maybe to wind up, I know that burnout is also prevented by doing those things that you love. And I have to ask it. I know that you're an avid ballroom dancer. So what do you love best about ballroom dancing and why aren't we all doing it? Well, you know, we think of it as sort of a fancy thing, but uh, technically it's a sport. It's called dance sport in a lot of circles. And like all good sport, really like any art form, writing or sculpting or playing football, I'm not going to advocate for football here, but soccer, let's say, it involves your mind and your body. So I'd say that ballroom dancing, at least 50%, if not more, is getting your brain to go along with what you're trying to do. It's a really a, a, a mind teaser in some ways. And um, so you have to stay focused and it, your brain is the part of your body that gets your muscles to move and put you in balance. It's excellent for balance. And then physically, it's it, uh, if you really... If you do bottom dancing intensely, it's an outstanding workout. And if you put all that together, oh my goodness, what ends up happening is you start flying around the floor and you're inside the music. You get to be inside music. You don't have to play the music, but you're inside it. Your body's going with the beat. And you and your partner are painting the world with uh, this beautiful music. So, wow, who wouldn't love to do that? Well, and you can't beat the costumes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> One time we, we have a local uh, dancing with the stars for, you know, community people. And I got to participate in it. That was, I mean, in my next life, I'd love to be a, a dancer or a singer. So for a minute, I got to dance the cha-cha with a 19-year-old oh. who was an amazing dancer. Oh. and. It was the most fun thing. I think between spraying my hair with sparkly hairspray and putting on false eyelashes, I had so much fun. The costumes are great. And oh my gosh, cha-cha to waltz to tango to salsa. You can concoct any story you like, any costume you like. It's, uh, you know, we're all built to tell stories and uh, sing songs and, you know, the grueling uh, routine of life sort of grinds that out of us, but it's all there. You know, every culture celebrates song and dance and story and uh, all dancing or some other way. I, I think everyone should have some access to that fun. Do you have a favorite dance? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, for a long time it was waltz, like regular waltz, but rumba is a very intensely romantic dance. Tango is very passionate and samba is a hard dance to learn, but it's really, really fun. That bounce is ugh, so much fun. 
Yeah, I gotta say I, I favor the Latin dances. Maybe it's the maybe it's the music. I don't know, but it's it's fun and fun to watch. Well, listen, thank you so much, and uh, what a fun way to wrap up. Oh, I appreciate yeah. everything that you do and the energy you put out in the world, whether it's in dancing or caring for kids. Well, Leah, thank you for what you're doing. I think it's just great that you've launched this podcast and much success, and I'm very honored to be invited to be part of it. Thank you. Well, make sure you share it with your friends. For sure. What a fun conversation and so insightful. I really enjoyed talking with Art and have a whole bunch of takeaways I wanted to try and capture. Number one, it's all about relationships. I think that's been a theme on most of these podcast episodes and that the doctor relationship with patients and families is paramount. Number two, child behavior problems take reframing. The child is in charge and we have to guide. This applies to all ages, teens, adults, etc. Number three, when considering school struggles, the question, is it ADHD, often comes, but we need to think bigger and expand our differential to include cognitive issues, emotional issues, and physical issues. Think of fever as an analogy. Fever can be caused by lots of different things, and so can school struggles. Number four, use your title, whether it's an MD or DO, as it will open doors. Number five, do what you love and love what you do. And number six, dance. Thanks so much to Art Please look at the show notes for links to articles and his blog. And as always, please share with your friends. I would love a five-star review if you really enjoyed this. And please subscribe so that you can catch all of the future episodes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.